Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again is Josh Avery from the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter groups, who was with us seven weeks ago to discuss Welcome Back, Frank. Welcome back, Josh. Hey, thanks again for having me. Oh, no problem. So this time around, we're actually discussing The Punisher's first appearance ever in Countdown Story number 57. We're talking about Amazing Spider-Man number 129, titled The Punisher Strikes Twice, written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Ross Andrew, inked by Frank Giacoya and Dave Hunt, colored by Dave Hunt, lettered by John Costanza, and edited by Roy Thomas. The official cover date is February 1974, although the on-sale date was October 30th, 1973. So this was published back in the days when we had an extra large gap between the cover date and the publication date. Yeah, people hadn't quite figured out that the comics were a collectibles market yet in a lot of ways. So the cover dates were like the best before date on the milk where, you know, once it's past that date, the idea was nobody would be interested in buying it, so take it down and replace it with something new. And I strongly suspect that there are a lot of people who would love to have this issue brand new on the shelf for the 20 cent covered price that it actually has. Because I believe it goes for a lot more than that now. But in any event, that actually covers the major significance of the issue here. In terms of the, the impact it had on the story in the industry, this introduced the Punisher. Now, I, I don't believe this was the first appearance of the Jackal, although he is involved. And I'm not even sure if he'd been revealed to be Miles Warren yet. Now, at this time, they hadn't revealed who he was, but it seemed like he was making a play to take over the spot of the Green Goblin. It does, yeah. Because at, at this point, the Green Goblin had fairly recently died. And Harry had caught some of it. For those who haven't read the comics, if you've seen the first Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire film with Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin, they actually adapted his death pretty accurately. That is, by and large, the way it happened. So he was essentially impaled on his own glider, but Harry blamed Spider-Man for it. Now, in the comics, Harry actually witnessed the collision. It makes it a little bit harder for him to blame Spider-Man than it did in the films. But yeah, I think that's the, the major significance I think it's moving the Jackal story a step forward, but since the Jackal's big play comes out in issues like, I think it's 148, 149, and 150, it's definitely a long-term plan, and we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, in terms of issues, this is just a few months after the death of Gwen Stacy, which has taken number one spot on the 75 Greatest Countdown. So that'll be the last story that we're planning to discuss in this series of podcasts, so you can look forward to that in June 2016. Um, so, Josh, how were you first exposed to this story? The first time I read it was after the Thomas Jane Punisher movie was released. They were giving out free comics, reprints, obviously, of this issue to get fans to read it, be aware of it. So that was the first time I had read it. Uh, but I was aware of the issue for quite some time. Being a Punisher fan that I am it was something that I always wanted. I actually do not own to this day, but I do remember seeing on the walls of comic shops and pining for it. Yeah, I, I can see that as a Punisher fan. I'm still tempted every time I see Daredevil number one show up on eBay. <laughs> that would be nice to have as well. My first exposure to this story would have been when I was doing a read-through of Amazing Spider-Man. I don't remember if I initially read this one on the CD-ROMs or in the Essentials, because I was collecting both Gigcorp CD-ROM or CD-ROMs and later DVD-ROMs, which is how I read the vast majority of Amazing Spider-Man for the first time, as well as the Essential volumes. So when this came out, I had all the essentials for Amazing Spider-Man when the GitCorp CD-ROMs came out, and that's when I stopped collecting. So I don't remember if that was in those essentials or not, because those have... I had the first seven volumes, 
So I think it was in there based on the size of those volumes, but they have all since been passed along to new owners. Ah. I'm not one of the guys that, you know, needs to have that feel or the smell of print copies in hand. So, you know, if I've got these things that are taking up a massive amount of shelf space in black and white, when I've got the full color versions on that DVD ROM over there, I see no reason to keep the black and whites. Of course. And I've gotten used to the digital myself lately. I don't exclusively buy the paper copies. I've bought some digital copies and the you know, you have to find out how to navigate it sometimes or they have a guided view, but they, they're very pretty, especially this amazing Spider-Man 129. It looks great on an iPad or uh, any sort of tablet. Yeah, it, it does. And they are, I think they're pulling the, the Marvel Masterworks coloring versions because I've, I've noticed a couple of them have footnotes that refer to Marvel Masterworks volumes rather than issue numbers. Right. So I, I think it's the Marvel Masterworks redone, which by and large, I'm okay with. I would, I have no problems with them taking the color as it was intended to be and reprinting it on better quality paper so that those original artistic choices are better represented. I'm not a huge fan of going back and redoing the work. So that's that's my take on it. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of seeing Peter Palmer replaced by Peter Parker in the reprints <laughs> of Amazing Spider-Man number one. It's That's not the way it first printed. No. Okay, so this story starts kind of in the middle of a larger story where recently Gwen Stacy has died and Spider-Man and Green Goblin had their famous battle and the Green Goblin died and everyone was blaming Spider-Man for the death. And the Jackal, who is a maybe a lesser known Spider-Man villain, uses this information to hire the Punisher to kill Spider-Man and then later frame the Punisher. And so the Jackal can make a play and do whatever his grand scam or scheme is. Yeah, that's largely it. And we see a lot of interaction between Peter and the Punisher. And it is nice. We actually see one of the residual effects to J. Jonah Jameson's campaign against Spider-Man the whole time. If people didn't believe Spider-Man was a villain or didn't believe the possibility, this story just doesn't work at all. Right. Right. If the death of the Green Goblin was the first thing he'd have been accused of, you know, there would be a lot more doubt in the public mind. But when J. Jonah Jameson's out there going, see, I was right. I've been right all along. That will go a long way towards convincing people that, yeah, there there might be something here. So we do have Miles Warren appearing. And as I said, I don't think we've revealed yet that the Jackal is Miles Warren. So it's kind of nice to see him showing up twice. I do like the art. I mean, this is Ross Andrew. And having read all the issues of Amazing Spider-Man, I think Ross Andrew is underappreciated. Right? You hear about the classic Spider-Man artists. You will quite deservedly hear a lot about Ditko and John Romita Sr. But I think... Ross Andrew is underappreciated. I think he should be right up there with those two. It's, he does a lot of very dynamic art, especially you know towards the end when he's fighting the Punisher. We get a, a feel for how just kinetic and agile Spider-Man is as he's bouncing around. There's one panel where we see Spider-Man drawn six times at different points in the motion right before he manages to convince the ja- or convince the Punisher that he's been played. There's also a great panel when he stops a robbery in progress and. It's very dynamic. He's kind of upside down and backwards and shooting webs. It's drawn very well, and it shows how agile and how flexible Spider-Man is, and, and also how you know how great he is at doing what he does. As we've said before when we were talking about it previously, this is the Punisher's first appearance. This is by no means his origin. Not at all, no. I, mean, I think the closest we'd get is on the last page, where... You know, Spider-Man says, well, you said you were a Marine. How come you're fighting over here? Because this was published when Vietnam was still going on. 
And the Punisher replies, that's my business, superhero, not yours. Maybe when I'm dead, it'll mean something. But right now, I'm just a warrior fighting a lonely war. And Spider-Man, just thought balloon, says, something tells me that man's got problems that make mine look like a birthday party. <laughs> and that's it. And there's a few things I like about that. One, there is the air of mystery. They don't feel obligated to give you the origin for this character right out of the gate, which is the standard trope, because the origin story is one of the first things that fans ask for. So they've gotten used to sort of giving it to you right out of the gate to satisfy that fan response. One of the other things I like about it is when he, he's not calling him Spidey or Spider-Man or Webhead or anything like that. He says, that's my business superhero, not yours. So established right from the start, the Punisher does not view himself as a superhero. He wouldn't call Spider-Man a superhero if he considered himself part of that club. Right? I right. don't see Captain America referring to Thor as superhero or vice versa. Right, not in this context. So I just he is just a warrior fighting a lonely war. He happens to have a costume, but that's it. There's nothing super about him and he doesn't see himself that way. He is a warrior. And that's why to him, you know, killing these criminals is really no different from to him killing the soldiers on the other side of a war. It's not necessarily pleasant, but it's not murder in the legal sense. Not in his mind. And this is what he views as as justice. I think, you know, knowing the Punisher the way we know him today, you know, the seed was planted by him calling Spider-Man superhero as, you know, he, he realizes that, you know, there are Spider-Man, Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man who are superhero who do their job, but there's maybe a dirtier job that needs to be done with a different level of criminal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's the kind of job, I still want to track down that Greg Rooker run on the Punisher, but my understanding is that part of that Punisher Warzone miniseries, Wolverine came to him and said, you know what, I get it. But the Avengers have decided they're going to deal with you. Watch your back. I mean, that that's all third-hand description. So I apologize to the listeners if, you know, you go rushing out to read it to catch that scene and it's not there or it's just misrepresented. But that's the feel I get. That's very accurate. And, and on topic, Spider-Man is one of the driving forces, if not the driving force, behind that Warzone series where he's, you know, he goes to the Avengers and says, this guy's a murderer. He's a psychopath. and we can't just let him operate. You know, we have a responsibility as superheroes to make sure that, you know, he pays for his crimes. He can't do things this way. And so he's one of the driving forces. And Wolverine does, you know, get aside with Frank, gives him a little heads up that the Avengers are coming and does say, you know, I get you're doing why you're doing what you're doing. But, you know, you got to get out of Dodge. And I can see Wolverine doing that because it's, as I said, the last time we were discussing the Punisher, I, I like it when my heroes take that high moral ground and don't kill. That's one of the reasons I'm kind of, one of the things that I have a hard time with is Wolverine as well, because he has killed so much, but at least Wolverine is consistently showing as not enjoying it. And it's also, when the Punisher decides, this is the next guy on my list, he's decided the next guy on my list is going to die. And it's a list of people he's going to kill before he's even chosen every name that's going to be on it. Whereas Wolverine, I get more the impression that with him, he's looking for the most efficient way to neutralize the threat. So if we've got someone who's a threat because of technology attached to their right arm, Wolverine is just as willing to chop off that right arm and let them live as he is to kill the guy because either one eliminates the threat. With Wolverine, it's just the most efficient way. And killing is an option, but it's not the default. Whereas Punisher, it's no, my, my plan is to kill at least as much as possible. I mean, Spider-Man survives because he does use a few non-lethal weapons against him. And that is probably, I think, the biggest drawback to that this issue is... I mean, you need Spider-Man to survive because, you know, we weren't in the era of legacy heroes yet. So this is prior, way prior to Crisis on Infinite Earths or 
Green Lantern's Emerald Twilight, or any of those other legacy books. It's before the days when Captain America was going to die during Civil War, anything like that. So at this time, with, with the Comics Code Authority, he's going to survive. So there's limits on which weapons he can use and how they can represent them. So there's potentially lethal weapons that he uses that miss, but anything he has that hits, you know, there's a titanium alloy wire gun that wraps Spider-Man up. You know, but Spider-Man has more than the strength of 10 men, so he could snap the wire and things like that. This is this is definitely Punisher early in his career. I can't see the Punisher today taking on a target like Spider-Man and not knowing what his strength levels are. And also, the first time he attacked Spider-Man, it was a concussive blast, as opposed to a, a sniper round, or, or a bullet, if you will. He says, and it's worded by Spider-Man too, that concussive blast hit that empty apartment building. So even early on in the days, not only did you say, that he wasn't using like Lethal Fourth because of the legacy character, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and Will Beater Spider-Man. There's not another character lined up to take that spot. But they also put that in there that the Punisher is not trying to kill random innocent people. He, you know, they word it there. That concussive blast hit an empty apartment building. So they, they put that in there, too, so you get a little bit of a sense of who the character is for the Punisher. Yeah, the Punisher very clearly in this issue, he's an antagonist to Spider-Man, but he doesn't view himself as a villain. Right. It is crystal clear to the readers, at least, that he is being manipulated from the start, and that if the Jackal was completely open and honest with him, the Punisher would not be on the job. Right. Same if there was an accurate representation of Peter's involvement in the Green Goblin's death, the Punisher wouldn't have taken the job no matter how many lies the Jackal told. That's what this is about. So anyway, going through it. So that's in terms of discussing the impact that the story had on ourselves and on the industry, it introduced the Punisher. And I think that's about it. I mean, it, it made some steps forward in terms of Peter Parker's life and the continuing soap opera that's been a fundamental part of Spider-Man from the get-go. But if someone says, you know, what specifically happened in issue 129 that shows up later, as far as the, the stories between Peter and MJ and the Daily Bugle staff, Betty Brant, a lot of those stories, you could take this piece out. Things might seem a little bit rushed, but it wouldn't necessarily feel like anything was missing if you skip this issue. I, I think the introduction of the Punisher is the one thing that's a lasting impact that we can absolutely say is from right here, right now. So would you say that's fair, Josh? Did I miss anything? No, that's absolutely correct. And that's one of the joys of reading this issue is that it's another day in the life of Spidey, Peter Parker. Uh, you know, J. Jonah Jameson is upset and excited at the same time that Spider-Man's a murderer and I've been right all along. And there's a quick bit with MJ and how she likes Peter, but, you know, he's he's still fresh off the death of Gwen Stacy. And it shows Harry for a moment and mentions that, you know, he kind of knows what happened with Spider-Man. So, yeah, it's just another day in the life of Peter Parker. Um, but, you know, you add this in and you have, you know, unknown at the time, or maybe they knew, you know, another character in the Marvel Universe, part of a larger picture. Yeah. And this is in the day in this sort of early Bronze Age when we've got introductions like The Punisher and you've got guys like Jerry Conway and Len Wein writing and editing and Roy Thomas editing. You know, I don't know if they... When they wrote this, I don't know if they knew when and where the Punisher was coming back, but this was a time when they were just throwing all the ideas out there for plot threads because it was at the point where they could recognize that the readership was growing up and they were having higher demands. So it's, you know, if you go back to, say, the Kirby Fantastic Four, there's a lot of panels where the background is just straight monochromatic color. And there's a few of them here, too, when Spider-Man and the Punisher are fighting on the rooftop. Looking at this, it, in the original issue, it's color numbered as page 16. In the PDF copy, it's page 10 out of 19, if anyone's following those to reference it. 
in the first part, the entire background is a chimney. Punisher saying, it's not something I like doing, it's something that simply has to be done, and I've got nothing to lose by risking what's left of my life wiping out your kind of parasite. The next three panels, there's no backgrounds whatsoever. There's uniform red color, uniform yellow, uniform green. And then back to this one, the rooftop, we see that same chimney that was in the first panel, because Spider-Man hits the Punisher into it, and it turns out to be a major plot point. But even then, the division between the end of the rooftop and everything else is a straight line. The rooftop is gray, there's a straight line, and the sky is yellow apparently, with no other buildings in sight. This is one of the last years when that level of artistic detail is really accepted by the public. And deadline crunches are getting tougher and tougher because you need more and more detailed art in every panel on every page. Right? The readers were getting less and less accepting of panels where the background is just one uniform color rather than an actual background. So they were so time crunched, they didn't really have the opportunity to plan out as far in advance as writers and artists do these days. You know, you don't get things like Jonathan Hickman coming in with the full outline that became the 28 issues of Secret Warriors mapped out when he got there. That just didn't happen in the 70s. You'd come in with two or three stories because two or three stories isn't the 12 to 18 issues it is now. It was two or three issues. And if it's a top-selling issue that you knew that retailers were going to pick up like Spider-Man, it might be four to six issues to tell two or three stories. So they were often just coming up with characters and ideas and throwing them out there. Len Wein used to say he he had to plant things. Someone would mail Peter Parker a letter and it'd be thrown on the table and you didn't know who it was from. And they'd you know focus on that letter in the foreground in the art as he was walking out the door. And people go, who is that from? What is it? <laughs> and at the time, Len Wein would have no idea. But he knew there was a, a thread he could pick up three months later when he needed a story. Three months later, Peter would pick up that envelope and go, oh, yeah, I got this letter. Open it up and go, what? And realize he's you know now overdue in dealing with whatever the contents were. Apparently in the Marvel offices, planting threads like this is now referred to as Claremonting, because Chris Claremont was so famous for it in his X-Men run. So, yeah, at this point, I'm pretty sure they knew that the Punisher was going to appear again, just because you've got this many tools in the toolbox, you throw them out there, and here when they said, you know, yeah, I bet you this guy's this guy has things going on in his life that make, you know, might look like a nightmare, or, you know, his life is a nightmare compared to my problems. It wouldn't surprise me at all to find out that Jerry Conway had no idea what the Punisher's history was going to be at that point. If he was just throwing it out there to have something out there as a plot thread that could be picked up down the road. Right, so with that, we're going to look at the, the deeper meanings of the morals, meanings, and messages in a segment of the show that I blatantly ripped off a of mission log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, which I highly recommend. So would you say that there's any morals or messages or meanings in this? Anything you can think of beyond, you know, crime bad? <laughs> I guess just the way that uh, characters deal with what they consider to be evil or, or villains is kind of lined out here, where no matter what, you know, Peter Parker in this story and any other story is not willing to kill anybody. Whereas that was the Punisher's, you know, his first, his first move. You know, he's, he's the world's deadliest assassin or however they, they titled him on the cover. And that's what he's hired to do. And that's what he's going to do. And then, you know, they speak it out. They talk it out. And. You know, he doesn't obviously kill Spider-Man. Yeah, it, it is very different. And the only other thing I'd see here that I could add to that was know what you're getting into. Because as right. we said, if the Punisher, if he was more informed before the Jackal approached him, he would not have partnered with the Jackal. That's just right. not his style. And that's one of the last panels when he finds out he was duped. You know, he, he punches a wall and he's, you know, I'm going to get back at him. This is, you know, this isn't right. This isn't, you know, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, with emphasis on he'll pay, I believe. Right. That was, yes, he'll pay. Yeah, for using him like a pawn. And then the Jackal realizes, yeah, this didn't 
you know, this didn't work out as I planned, but I am still planning to take over the city. And then the promise of next issue, Hammerhead. <laughs> so if anyone out there listening has ever heard next issue Hammerhead and decided I need to go buy that because of Hammerhead, let me know. <laughs> There's a first for everything. Uh, so from here, we usually talk about why it landed at this point in the listings. Solely because of the first appearance of the Punisher. I would think so. There's nothing else here that stands out from this entire era of Spider-Man. So it is not a bad issue in any way, shape, or form. Not at all. It is perfectly enjoyable. It's just if I were to pick out this issue for why it's different from issues, say, 123 through 150 of Amazing Spider-Man, the introduction of the Punisher is really all I can point out. So if you're a fan of this era of Spider-Man or the Punisher, it's worth checking out. But with Spider-Man, because it's so serialized and so much of this, so much of his life is a soap opera, if you're going to read it, read it continuously. I mean, issues 121 and 129 are coming up on the list anyway. So might as well start with 121 and read the next eight or nine issues, because it's it will give you a little more context to what's going on. And you get a great story here if you're a Punisher fan and you're looking for the first appearance, as opposed to if you're a Deadpool fan and you pick up the first appearance of Deadpool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we covered that one for sure. That may be the worst issue on the list, but by popular demand for Deadpool, it's on the list. Yeah, and there's, overall, the Clone Saga was a better story than the first appearance of Deadpool, but I think for worst individual issues, we can pick out some of the tie-in issues in the little miniseries of, of Clone Saga. That's very true. That, that's 165 issues that didn't need to be 165 issues. <laughs> uh, if listeners have been listening along the whole time, they've heard all about that. Of course. So, Josh, thanks again for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So that wraps up this week. Join us next week for Alpha Flight issue number 12. And this is from the first volume of Alpha Flight, not any of the relaunches. Originally published back in the 80s, it has been reprinted in Alpha Flight Classic Volume 2, which is the copy I'll be reading it from. And then you know, feel free to rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher. If you have friends that you think you may enjoy it, please pass the link along to them so that they can join in as well. And thank you for listening. Ghost ships, alien parasites, planetary crime lords and galactic godfathers, life beyond the borders of the Solar Alliance can be dangerous. Find out just how dangerous with Alibi Jones and the Hornet's Nest. Are you a fan of classic science fiction adventure? Join me, author and narrator Mike Luoma, each week for Glow in the Dark Radio, the free science fiction podcast where I read you my stuff. Find the show at glowinthedarkradio.com or search Mike Luoma and or Glow in the Dark Radio on iTunes. Listen now for my soon-to-be-released new novel, Alibi Jones and the Hornet's Nest. The book arrives May 23rd. Pre-order at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and iTunes now. Here a chapter each week on Glow in the Dark Radio. More information at glowinthedarkradio.com.